Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is a very special day for me and my family. This is the very first Albuquerque low that we have weathered and gotten through. Not bad. I don't know what all the talk about how dangerous they are and how scary they are. And I don't know. Maybe this was a, a light one. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, nice and fun. Uh, we are going to be talking about something fun today. I can't back away from a mic that's already on my neck. I don't know why it was backing away. Um, all right, so we are in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. And last week, and I hate to rush right into this, but there's a lot of stuff to cover this morning. Um, in Judges chapter 6, we saw yet again Israel in that place of compromise. And that compromise had so overwhelmed them that they had done evil in the eyes of God. Big, big surprise. He sent in the Midianites in order to chastise them and to give them their due. And in the midst of that, they cried out to God saying, help. God answered, as he always answers that cry for help and desperation. God's ear is always attentive to his people when they shout out to him, help me, help me, help me. And God answered and gave them a history lesson. And that's kind of where we ended last week, God giving Israel a history lesson about, do you not remember who I am and what I've done for you in the past? Why are you living in compromise today when I have done such great things for you in the past? And so God sent them a prophet, reminded them of those things, and we pick up the story in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And we're going to read through probably about verse 32 this morning. But at the very beginning of this, um, I think we can easily identify with what's going on with Gideon in this story and what we deal with in an everyday life-to-life -life situation in this way. God often calls his people, you and I, to do very difficult things that are contrary to the world around us. He asks us to stand on his word. He asks us to live certain principles. He asks us to have certain fruits and experiences in our life that are contrary to the world around us. And we get scared when God calls us to something and we have to make a stand and we have to be noticed and we have to then be bold and accept the world's response to our actions, to our beliefs, and to our thoughts. And that is a scary thing when God calls us to make a stand. And it's scary because we look at the world around us and go, I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be a point of contention. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be judged. We like going with the flow and being in the norm because it doesn't bring attention to us. Because when that attention of the world comes to us, we can be scared. How do we react? How do I answer? I don't know how to answer all these things, all these questions about why I believe this or why I hold to these practices. And we get scared and nervous. And so that prevents us from being bold in our faith, standing clearly on God's word and making a stand for him. Sometimes when we're in that position, and we have all been there before, myself included. Many times I've remained silent when the people around me have criticized Christ. And I'm embarrassed. And I am guilty of that. 
So I know if it happens to me, it has to happen to you too, because we're a lot alike. This chapter, in particular what we're going to be looking at this morning, helps us deal with that peer pressure. And it shows God is amazingly patient and kind through this entire process of leading us to be bold in faith and to rid ourselves of fear. And he does that starting off in the first few verses we're looking at, verse 11 through 16 of Judges chapter 6. And we look at perspectives. And as I start this, remember, the Midianites for over seven years has frustrated Israel, and Israel has gone into hiding, trying to prevent all their stuff being stolen from these raids. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oath at under an oak in Ophrah, which is um, way north in Israel, as far north as um, from our perspective where um, Coles and Best Buy, that, that interchange up there, that's as far away from Jerusalem. So it's on the far edges of Israel. Um, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abzerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. So the very context shows us this guy Gideon is hiding. He's hiding the fact that they have grains and they have a wheat harvest, but he's hiding it in a winepress, which is just basically a big vat that oftentimes was just dug into the ground and specially lined so that the grape juice, which would then become wine by nature, um, was hidden. And why he was in the wine press is probably because it was underground. So they knew it was underground, and so he was hiding, and the angel of the Lord came to him in that spot and said the following. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Encouraging. So far, we don't know the exploits of Gideon's warriorship, but how encouraging, angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, coming to you going, how are you doing, mighty warrior? He's building Gideon up. He's showing him a side of Gideon's faith that he has not yet experienced. And of course, Gideon's response in verse 13, um, pardon me, my Lord, we'd say, what? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Oh, Gideon, 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 I know you will want to take these words back. Because what did Gideon do? What did Gideon in essence do? He blamed God. He said, the problem here is not the Israelites. The problem here is not our compromise. The problem here is not our lack of faith. The problem here is not fear. The problem here is not obeying you. The problem is our God's abandoned us. If our God really was truly the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why are we the promised people in slavery? Why are we hiding our bread? Why are we hiding our animals? Where's God? God abandoned us. And before we judge Gideon too harshly, have we not ourselves been there before? 
all this is going on in my life, all this is hard and terrible and tough and, and just a burden, and does God not know? Where is this God of all the promises? Where is this God of all the miracles of healing when my body's going through this? Where is this God? I keep reading stories about him. Where is he? You see, Gideon's response is so typical of our response. When life around us is hard and, and we feel distant from God, our blame immediately shifts to, well, God didn't do this. Where is God? Why is he not delivering us like he used to? What's wrong with him? I'm pretty sure Gideon would love to take those two verses back. But he continues in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The Lord doesn't answer the objection. Where are you? Where have you been? Why are you not acting the way you have? What is the Lord's response? He gives Gideon a duty. Go. Go and save the people. Go and do it. Save them out of the hand of Midian, and then ends in that verse, am I not sending you? If I said as God, go, first of all, I don't expect you to argue with me. I don't expect you to blame me. And if I say go, don't you think I know what I'm doing here? Don't you think I know what you are facing? Don't you think I know what you need? If I'm saying, go, am I not going to go with you? And, of course, our answer is, well, yes. Then why is it so hard for us to go? Why is it so hard for us to take a stand? Why is it so hard for us to say, Lord, I'll follow you no matter what you ask of me, but don't ask of me of that because that's too hard? No, our response should be, if you're sending me, if you're calling me to do this, to say this, to live this way, if you're asking me to volunteer or give, if it's coming from God, don't you think he knows what he's doing? Don't you think he has the wisdom and power to accomplish it? Of course he does. God doesn't stand up for himself and answer Gideon's charges. He just simply says, go. I'm the one sending you. You need nothing more than to walk in the will of God. And you are not just safe. You are not just protected. You are triumphant in that walk. You are triumphant in that stand. He continues in verse 15. Gideon is so much like us. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. How can I save Israel? And there, here comes the excuses. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, which is that territory of Israel, and I am the least in my family. Sounds a little bit like Moses. Oh, God, I know you're calling me to lead your people out of Israel, but I'm not a really good public speaker, so please don't put me in the role of public speaking. I can't talk in front of people. You know my weakness. God says, I'll be your mouth. I'll be your hands. Have I not been the one who's created mouths and hands? I know what I'm doing. But our perspective, when God calls us to make a stand or God calls us to action, our perspective looks around and goes, it's hard, it's scary, and I'm weak. And God isn't ignoring the fact that it's scary, that you know, it's dangerous, or that you're weak. He's not denying that. 
But his counter to that arguing and excuses is what? Me. What you're not considering is me. If I'm in this, you will be victorious. If I'm in this, it will get accomplished. If I'm in this, you will be safe. Maybe not your life. He hasn't promised that your life will be safe. He hasn't promised that your life will be comfortable or free from any persecution or martyrdom. But he said, your soul's safe. And if your soul's safe, it's with me. And nothing can happen to that. No man can rob in, steal it, take it, or damage it. Not one bit, because I hold that. So God's argument to Gideon's weakness is, I'm with you. In verse 16, the Lord answers the final objection here by saying, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That's all Gideon needed. That's all we should need, knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us. And those scripture verses are all over scripture. You can look them up. God has promised no matter if you're on the highest hill or the lowest depth of the seas, God's presence is with you. He is present everywhere in this created universe. There's not a spot or inch of this universe you can go where God is unsure of where you're at and what you're facing. God knows it. And it's a matter of perspective because Gideon's eyes were looking at all the bad, terrible things that could happen. He's looking at all of his weaknesses. He's looking at all the reasons why he should not take a stand and be God's mighty warrior. He's looking at all the reasons why it is scary to be center stage for God. And God answers every one of those starting with, I'm with you. Am I not the one sending you? Am I not the one who's put my word in your heart? And so when you are faced with something, if you stand on God's word, you always stand in the majority. You always stand in safety regardless of what we see, but we are so prone to look around us at the circumstances and the culture and the attitude and the mood and our weaknesses, and we give ourselves the excuse, well, I can't or I shouldn't. I don't want to become a target. I don't want to make noise or ripples. I just want to smoothly go through, do my thing, and that's it. God says, I want more of you. I want so much more of you. I want you to be a mighty warrior in my name, no matter where you are planted in this creation. It's a matter of perspective. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and this is a book that um, I hope that um, in time uh, we actually have a chance to go through as a sermon series, because it is a fantastic book, Ecclesiastes. A um, little bit difficult to understand. I think it's probably one of the most difficult books of Scripture to understand. Uh, but it is fascinating when you have those moments of clarity about what God is saying. But in chapter 11, Solomon writes, As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. God is crystal clear with us. He is not expecting us to figure it out. He's not expecting us to have it all together. He's not expecting us to completely understand. That's okay. Where our confidence comes from in standing firm for God in faithfulness is not our understanding or comprehension of every detail that surrounds us. 
Where our strength comes from is we're standing in God. We're going in His name. We have His word in our heart. We have His passion binding us. We have safety, peace, and security when we stand and move forward with God. There should be great trepidation and fear if you're making stances and movements that God hasn't said to move and stand on. That should give you pause. That should give you excuses. But when we take a stand for God, with God, it is a good, safe place, and he does not ever ask us, please have it all figured out. Please have it all reasoned. He simply says, if I tell you to go, I need you to be willing to stand and go. That takes a tremendous amount of faith. That takes a tremendous amount of trust that God knows what he's doing when he says, I need you to take a stand. I need you to move forward. I need you to give and serve. A lot of trust and a lot of confidence. And I think we would fall into Gideon's process, not only giving excuses, but also asking, I want proof, because that's exactly what uh, Gideon does in verses 17 through 23 of the next section. He's looking for proof. Now, he does it in a roundabout way. Uh, we probably wouldn't do this today. One angel of the Lord doesn't come visit us physically under an oak tree to have a conversation. He uses his word and spirit to communicate with us. Uh, but Gideon replies to this in verse 17, um, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. You see, Gideon did not have the benefit of being able to go on Google and do a quick Wikipedia search on how do I know the angel of the Lord is talking to me. You know, see, we, we kind of are able to just kind of figure it out. You know, does this look like the picture? Maybe. Maybe he's a little bit younger in this picture, a little bit older now in person. Gideon had nothing to go on except... I remember my ancestors telling me stories about God's work, about bringing him out of Egypt, uh, the walls of Jericho, and other victories early on in the book of Judges. He remembers stories, not the details. And so he does a very, what we would say, wise thing. Let's really figure out if the messenger truly is who he says he is. Because anybody could just come out of nowhere, I suppose, and just say, go do, go fight the Midians. Could be a crazy person for all... Gideon knows. In fact, Gideon's mind is probably racing through. Is this that old guy everyone says lives up in the cliffs that I'm supposed to ignore? And you know, is it, has it come down and tried to weasel me into a fight? And I, I think Gideon is being wise and asking, "How do I know for sure who you are?" Because right now, all it's been is just words. So he says in that verse 17, "Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you." So if he says he's the angel of the Lord, could be Christ incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ, he could be saying, if this guy's going to receive an offering, then this is God. If it's not God, he's not going to receive an offering. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon went inside, verse 19, and prepared a young goat, uh, and from an ephrah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in the basket and its broth in a pot. He brought it out from under, uh, under there and offered it to him, under the oak. That entire process, verse 19, probably took six to ten hours. Okay, this was not, let me go in and see if I can find some Triscuits cheese and some salami and quickly cut it up and hand it to you on a plate. 
This was taking a goat that was alive, butchering it, taking care of it, putting it on a fire, letting it roast, collecting all the juices, making bread from scratch. This was an entire day's process. So let's not think he just went to the store real quick, got something heat and ready, put it in the microwave, and he's done. This was a long process. So Gideon spent, verse 19, hours thinking, would the person still be there when I'm done? Is this really real? What other excuses can I use? Well, he's done. In verse 20, the angel of God said to him, when it had been brought to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. So basically, God is saying there, and, and of course, Gideon did so. What God is saying there is take everything, make sure that it is as wet as possible. Put everything on the rock and then pour all the broth on top of it. All the bread, all the meat. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. So this was not the crazy old man that might have lived in the cliffs in the mountains. This was supernatural. God was just simply describing himself as, I am supernatural. Now this fire doesn't really become relevant and important in the story of Gideon, but there is a real special connection here because the idol that Gideon is really fighting against is Baal. And Baal is generally a generic term for uh, just the god of that area. But this god, Baal, was known for one thing, lightning and fire. Lightning and fire were his kind of thing. In fact, some of the statues that they still have that show Baal show him holding um, like lightning and, and burning in a, in a flame holding lightning. And so that's kind of his thing, fire and lightning. And I think what God is doing here is showing that Baal has no control over fire and lightning. I do. And I do it by just the tip of my staff completely consumes all the food. When Gideon, verse 22, realized that the angel of the Lord, that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, because he had already disappeared, so maybe this is a voice from heaven. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Why in the world do you think Gideon thought he was going to die? <laughs> if that happens right in front of me, trust me, the next thing I think, he's going to touch me with the staff and I'm going to die. That's just, my imagination runs to the worst case scenario. Oh great, now I'm dead. How typical of us, though, right? When something weird or unexpected happens in our lives, what's our go-to? Oh, life's over. I'm going to die. It's all ruined. It's done. Well, hold on. It's good to have an imagination, but it has to be grounded in reality. God didn't threaten him, but he has to reassure him. This was indeed miraculous. You did indeed see something that people have not seen since the day of Moses. Hundred, probably close to 150, if not longer, years. Gideon's freaking out. Gideon really does not know what's going on. He wanted proof 
that God indeed was who he said he was, this angelic visitor, he got the proof, and his response is, I'm scared. And God, in his amazing compassion, reaches out to Gideon and says, be still and be at peace. Calm down, relax. Uh, we, we have a dog at home, a wonderful dog. She is marvelous. But there is one thing that drives her absolutely crazy fearful, and that's a thunderstorm. And this happens to a lot of pets, I understand that. But I look at this dog, and the dog is full of life and fun and, and energetic, but when it comes to thunder and lightning or thunder, she just, you can find her cowering under a bed. It is so scary for her. From our perspective, we look at that and go, it doesn't make sense. It's not going to get you. It, it, it's happening out there, and you can hear it, you can feel it, and, and it's going to be a surprise, but it's not going to get you. And you try to reassure that dog or those animals, and it's hard to reassure them because you're going to talk to them like a baby. Oh, come on, honey, it's all right. Don't worry, it's just it's God doing bowling up in heaven. Don't worry about that. And we try to reason with the dog. And how well does that go? It doesn't. It gets you frustrated because they're not listening. They can't listen, but yet you still go, oh, come on, it's all right. This is God approaching us saying, when I've called you to do something and I've shown you that it's me, God, calling you to that, don't be scared. It's okay. Be at peace. And I say that's compassion on God's part because God could have handled it a different way. He could have said, well, no kidding. I'm God. I turned it into fire. Get off your butt and start doing. But he knows what we need is not always a swift kick in the behind, but sometimes we need that reassurance, encouraging word, hey, get out there and do it. Be at peace. Take a breath. It's going to be okay. You trust me? Yes? Then jump. Take a stand. Do, serve, give. It's going to be okay. That is beautifully compassionate of God. In John chapter 20 and 29, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and um, they're asking for signs and wonders. And they're really scared about what Jesus is talking about, his death and resurrection. And he's risen, and he tells them in John chapter 20, Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed, talking to his disciples. But blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. That's us. We've not seen his resurrection. We've not seen Christ's mighty miracles. We've not heard his voice audibly. We've not eaten with him, walked with him, fished with him, calmed storms with him, seen uh, healings. We haven't. None of us have. And Jesus says it is a blessed thing, a good thing to be those people who believe but yet don't need all the proof. Now, God gives us ample proof. I'm talking that one-on-one, -on -one, God saying, I'm God, visibly and physically in front of you. Gideon had that opportunity. He had God in front of him, audibly hearing his voice. Go, mighty warrior, I'm with you. What, me? Go, mighty warrior, given you into the hands of 
I've given the Midians into your hands. Kill them all. Go. He needed that evidence. Jesus says it's a blessed thing not to have all that evidence lined up, that it's okay to take a step without knowing all the circumstances and the whole perspective. If we have God, we have a great footing, the perfect footing to make a stand and to move forward. In verse 24 through uh, verse 32, not quite the end of the chapter, but we're not going to make it to the end of the chapter today. But through verse 32, all of these things are happening in verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and there called it the Lord is peace or Jehovah Shalom. And to this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abarazites. And again, this would be in a place far north. When this was written, this altar still stood. And that was a common, common practice of the Israelites when something miraculous happened and God visited them or God spoke to them or God gave them direction, they would build an altar and make sacrifices. That, that's a reasonable spiritual thing to do. And it was a hallmark. It was a standard. It was a memorial to everyone that walked by it. This is what God did. God did something here. Well, what did God do? Well, God did this. God met Gideon and gave him the courage to do chapter 7 and 8 or even the rest of chapter 6. So Gideon's response was perfectly right for an Israelite in those days. I'm going to worship God. And of course, I think that could be our response too. We don't need to build an altar and sacrifice animals. Christ is our sacrifice, but he does call us to worship. Worship and singing praise to him, honoring his name and acknowledging his work is a great thing for us to do every time our lives are intersected with God's goodness and God's revelation. We can be there saying, amen, thank you, and praise you for your pushing, your prodding, your comfort, and your encouragement. He continues, uh, verse 25. That same night, the Lord wasn't finished with him. Remember what the Lord asked him to do was what? Go and save Israel from the hands of the Midians. So he starts out in verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, uh, the one that's seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Everybody knows what's happening in verse 25 there? You read between the lines, don't have to read between the lines. Where was the altar of Baal? It was his father's. It was his dad's. It was his family's altar to a foreign false god of fire and thunder. And Gideon's first task to save Israel from the hand of the Midians was to do what? Start in his own home. Start on his own piece of property. Get yourself right. Now, if it was Gideon's dad's altar, I can guarantee you, as one of the dad's sons, he had participated in worship to that idol at some point in his life. It just makes sense. 
that that was his family's altar. So when the family went to make sacrifices, they didn't go to an altar of Jehovah and sacrifice. They went to the altar of Baal. That was their family practice. That was an obvious family practice because the whole land had compromised. That is how far it went. But how beautiful it is that God could take an idolater and turn him into a mighty warrior. God could reach a person whose family was headlong into worshiping false gods and call them back to a relationship with him and say, go forward. Oh, God, are you sure you want Gideon? Because Gideon, I already said, he is the weakest of all the, the tribes. He's the weakest in his family. David would say the same thing in time. And his family worshiped false gods. He, his family had already compromised to the point of, I'm going to build idols on my own land. God calls him to start the action of saving Israel with his own family. Take the bull, the very specific bull, seven years old. The second one, I have no idea if that has any significance. Perhaps because uh, the Midianites had been enslaving and pillaging Israel for seven years up to this point. So maybe this was one of the first bulls that were born around the time that all this started. Take this Tear down your father's altar to Baal and tear down the Ashereth pole beside it. Uh, and that is, the Ashereth pole is, there's no examples of it in archaeology for us to look at, but it is assumed to be a pole sort of like a totem pole that you would kind of recognize as a totem pole with just different carvings on that pole that was used to um, promote fertility within the worshipers of that god. Um, stone and wood that they worshiped. Uh, so tear it down and cut down the pole in verse 26. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you used to cut it down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So God's plan of action for him started with Take the bull, pull down the altars, get rid of them, rebuild the altar to my name, and then sacrifice the bull. So verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was like us, he was afraid of his family and the townspeople. He did it at night rather than in the daytime. This side of history, we can look at Gideon and say, oh, man, you should have had more faith. You should have just, if God said it, you should have just gone out there and done it in broad daylight so everyone could see. But as humans, we'd go, yeah, doing it at night is so much better. There's no security cameras. No one's going to be watching. The dead at night, no one's going to know it's us, and we'll do it sneakily so no one will catch us. Very human. You see, Scripture is filled with ordinary people doing extraordinary things, not because they had the power in and of themselves to do it and to muster up the bravery, but because their God called them to it. Our God is the same God, calls ordinary people that are weak and sometimes full of idolatry to do great things for him. All we need to do is stand and go. Take that first step of, yes, Lord, I will. That's all he's asking for. He takes care of the circumstances. He takes care of the power. He takes care of the, you know, uh, the reserves and the strength. He even takes care of the peace. He just wants us to take the step and the willingness to go forward. 
Well, Gideon does. He does it at night, but he does it. In verse 28, in the morning when the people in town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with Asherah's pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. I know there was no social media back then, but you can tell that that would be the trending story with everyone taking their selfie. Can you see? Oh, they did this to the altar. It'd be all over. Cannot believe what happened. And they're confused. Who would have done it? There's a bull that's been burnt on it. And so they asked each other in verse 29, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. I have no idea what that careful examination was. Gideon took 10 people with him. I imagine one of those 10 probably spilt the beans, snitches, you know, they get stitches. I have no idea, but someone there snitched on poor Gideon. And when they carefully investigated, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The people, verse 30, of town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Gideon's worst nightmare just happened. And I can imagine Gideon is thinking in his mind, I told you, God, this was going to happen. I take a stand, I do what you command, and the world around me freaks out, and now they want me dead. Joash, his dad, replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by mourning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeru Baal. And to that day, let Baal contend with him. So dad's response, maybe wanting to save his, skin's, his son's skin, and maybe just simply realizing time has come for us to stand with God again, says, if you think Baal is that offended, if you think he is that upset, why doesn't Baal just fight for himself? Let, let Baal take care of it. You don't have to force his hand. Let Baal do it. And, of course, Baal's response is what? Nothing. Because it's rock and wood. It doesn't speak. It cannot act on itself because it's an idol. A few things to encourage us. The first is from uh, Psalm 96, verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That is all we have to go with. That is all we need is that reassurance that the God we serve has made the heavens. That's who we answer to. That's who we worship. That's who we strive to be near. And who has said, I will be near you, the God who created the heavens. In Psalm 27, verse 1, to give us strength against fear, the psalmist says, The Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me, your rod and they, your staff, they comfort me. And in John 16, it says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Jesus doesn't deny life will be hard. We'll have tribulation. But in the midst of that tribulation, we can take a moment and be at peace, knowing that no matter what we face, Christ has already overcome it. All he asks of us is to step out in faithfulness and stand with him. Let's pray. Our Father, how often we find ourselves like Gideon giving excuses of why we don't speak up for you, why we don't stand with you, and why we compromise. Help us, Father, to be as simple and as bold as Gideon and take the right steps when you call us to action. Help us, Father, to be people of action, trusting and resting in your peace and your good providence. And I know, Father, you will protect us from the world around us because you've overcome it. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.